Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Infectious Diseases. This podcast brings you expert perspectives from two HIV specialists and an advocate for people living with HIV on the importance of optimizing antiretroviral therapy through an individualized approach to care and shared decision making. The discussion is guided by pre-canvassed questions provided by specialists in HIV infection, genitourinary medicine and sexual health. This activity is funded by an educational grant from Vive Healthcare and it is provided by Touch IME. Hi, my name is uh, Jens Lundgren. I'm a professor of infectious disease uh, and a practicing infectious disease uh, specialist uh, at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. It is my sincere pleasure uh, to welcome you to this discussion on shaping antiviral therapy around individual needs, uh, how to maximize adherence and quality of life. I'm here with uh, Professor Marta Bofito. Uh, uh, she's a, a consultant physician at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in Imperial College London, um, as well as a clinical director of HIV, sexual and gender health uh, dermatology uh, at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital uh, in London. I'm also very privileged to be joined today by Angelina Namiba, uh, who has over 24 years of experience of working in the HIV sector as an advocate for people uh, living with HIV. Today's program is divided into three themes. The first theme focuses on how to ensure that the individual needs uh, are taken care of uh, as we are approaching patients who are starting on treatment. The second theme is how to, which considerations to make uh, around which uh, of the available recommended uh, antiviral uh, treatment regimes that is the most optimal uh, for that individual patient. And then finally, looking at the long-term perspective how do we monitor the individual needs uh, as treatment uh, is maintained uh, over many years uh, uh, and age uh, and other issues uh, becomes uh, uh, an important part in, in people's life? So let's start here with the first topic, uh, how to address individual needs uh, uh, and personalize the assessment as people are starting on antiviral treatment. Clearly, as healthcare providers, our job is to be able to assess patients' readiness to start uh, and maintain antiviral treatment uh, at that point uh, before we actually start the regime. I think there is global consensus, I certainly hope so, <laughs> uh, that starting antiviral treatment is recommended for all newly diagnosed patients living with HIV, regardless of the CD4 cell count. This has been in place uh, since 2015. Um, and therefore, anybody uh, that uh, is started on treatment, uh, also those who don't have symptoms from HIV, uh, should really be carefully assessed for whether they are actually ready uh, to initiate treatment. Um, the AIS guidelines have put out uh, a, um, an, a, an approach, a systematic approach to how you can assess uh, and understand people's readiness uh, um, uh, and please address those uh, the questions or the, those stages as, as you are evaluating uh, and talking to individual patients. 
We know from surveys that there are barriers uh, in the communication between the healthcare provider and people living with HIV. Quite surprisingly, one third of people living with HIV with treatment-related concerns feels uncomfortable discussing uh, these concerns uh, with a, a healthcare provider. The main issues for why that is not the place for those who are concerned is that for some it's essentially a despair uh, that nothing much could be done uh, with those concerns. Another reason for this is uh, that the healthcare provider never brought up the issue or asked them, uh, asked them in an open way. Uh, and for some, it is the fear of being labeled as a difficult uh, patient. So with those introduction comments, uh, uh, let's get to the panel. Uh, we have some uh, questions that has been identified uh, uh, by a wider uh, target audience consultation uh, that we'll now have a discussion with our two panelists around. So your reflections, maybe Marta, as a HIV physician, uh, you have been in this situation many times, uh, talking to people who's in this situation of starting a therapy. What's your thoughts uh, and what do you f focus on in your conversations and assessment of people's readiness? It's a great question. And of course, it's very important. It's very important to have conversation and to ask questions and really try to feel where the person in front of you is in terms of being prepared to start and understanding how important it is. Um, I firmly believe that it's a journey that the person living with HIV and the doctor has to, have to take together. And the doctor needs to make sure that, again, a lot of questions are asked about the situation, you know, how the person lives, how they feel, comorbidities, other factors that affect their life. And I think that today we are and we should be confident in telling people that the medications that are available, although are still a bit of a burden because of course people need to take pills uh, or medications in general for the rest of their lives, to control viral replication are easier to take and better tolerated than they used to be in the past. So there could be some reputation of antiretroviral therapy that history brings with itself that increases the fear of people. So I think reassurance is very important. And then just to introduce the topic that I think we might develop is also um, Something I strongly believe in is um, implementing services like peer support in the uh, services that uh, provide care for people living with HIV so that if the fears of the person that has to start are not addressed by clinical care providers, there's other tools to support people in starting treatment. Excellent. Um... Answer. So thank you very much. And it really is a good layup as well to you, Angelina, uh, as a, a patient advocate uh, and with a vast experience. I'm sure you have been involved in peer discussions uh, with uh, uh, patients who are in a difficult situation. Your perspective. So in terms, <clears throat> thank you very much. All the things that Martha said, but in terms of my perspective, I think it's 
you're right, it's really important to look at what some of the barriers are. And this could be many, including, you know, just denial of the HIV status itself, lack of actually understanding how treatment works and what the benefits are for a patient. And um, there could be also either issues with just practical issues with adherence. I think it's really important to explain just in very simple language about how treatment works and why you need to take it every day. Um, because a, a point that Martha raised was around the historical issues around maybe what medication was like before. Because patients might then say, well, why do I need to start treatment straight away? So it's also really important to understand and explain the benefits of starting straight away, staying well for longer, etc. But I think in terms of um, some of the other issues and explaining how and why it's important to start and just looking at what patients might not be ready, it's about also familial circumstances. Um, you know, who do they live with? You know, are some of them experiencing intimate partner violence that affects the ability to start treatment? You know, so looking at, um, you know, some people have religious beliefs around treatments. But it's also just very much explaining and making reference to actually, you know what, you know, sometimes you can use examples like, well, you know, when you have a headache, you do take a pill to, for that to go away. So think about it as, you know, this is something that's going to help you to be well. Um, but it's also just making sure that um, people can relate to, you know, the benefits um, of taking treatment. Um, but also, I think I just wanted to mention the other thing was um, some of the tools that we might use in terms of making patients understand that treatment, taking treatment is only a tiny part of their lives. They have lots of other things going on, so they can just fit treatment in with the stuff that they do every day. If I may add something, sorry, Jens, it's uh, um, very helpful to hear Angelina's perspective. Uh, on top of all of that, obviously, mental health is really important, assessing anxiety and depression, because the literature is quite clear nowadays. Recent data show that the quality of life of people living with HIV could be good, could be the same of the quality of life of people without HIV. However, anxiety and depressions are more frequently diagnosed among people living with HIV. So if we make sure we address that, when that is addressed and support, adherence to treatment, engaging in, in care are higher. So I think that that's just, just to kind of complete the picture. And I, and I think this is a very important piece of information to share with the person you have in front of you that needs to start. Excellent, thank you. One thing that I have come to seeing quite a lot of times is that people are concerned that once they start on treatment, uh, they need to obviously carry the medicine with them and that essentially is disclosing their HIV positive state, uh, which they may want to disguise. How, I mean, it's a very practical issue uh, when they cross borders, etc., etc. How do you try to overcome that concern, uh, which is legitimate to uh, obviously because people should not disclose their, their HIV status except for if they want to do that. And this could be the way to, that would unintentionally lead to that. Uh, Angelina, have you heard about that as a barrier? Is that a concern? Yeah, it is a concern for some patients, uh, you know, but one of the things you can say is about, you know, for example, 
for somebody who's aging like myself, I do have comorbidities. So I have lots of other pills that I'm taking. So in mm. terms of traveling, you can just put them all together in a little pill box so that you can't differentiate whether this is the HIV medication or this is my heart pressure, high blood pressure medication. So taking it along and not making it a big deal in terms of, so that's if you're traveling abroad, for instance. But in terms of day-to-day -day activities, most people are now taking medication maybe once or twice a day, for instance. So what we advise is fit the medication in with something that you do every day. So for instance, you wake up every day, you brush your teeth, you have a shower, you have breakfast, a cup of tea. So maybe fit that in your regime so you take your medication in the morning after you've brushed your teeth or in the evening before you go to bed. That in yourself for the whole day means you don't have to carry the medication around. But in terms of traveling, you just put it with everything else that you take, whether it's vitamins or whether it's you know other medication. So that is not like specific pills for HIV. It's just all together. And then don't make a big deal of it because it's only a small part of your life. Absolutely. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, excellent discussion. Good points that both of you are raising. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Uh, how we want to make sure that there is shared decision making in the selection of which ART regimes that patients uh, are, are started on. Also here, uh, there's obviously a good footing to have that discussion on, uh, namely the, the guidelines here reflected by the AX guidelines from, from last year, um, uh, recommending uh, that uh, patients are initiated uh, on uh, a regime of, of three drugs. Uh, we won't go into the details of the specific drugs here, uh, but just to say that these guidelines are obviously uh, based on the best possible evidence uh, that is available, uh, and that is of course important as a premise uh, for this discussion. Uh, we also know that there are specific uh, and uh, important considerations that you need to take into account uh, in your final selection. Uh, uh, for women, uh, are they uh, contemplating uh, potentially being uh, pregnant? Uh, uh, do people have uh, an uh, intervening infection? Tuberculosis could be a problem. Uh, do they have comorbidities? Uh, do they take other medicine? Are there drug-drug interactions issues? Problems in, in swallowing? Uh, uh, was the HIV required while people were uh, on, on PrEP? Um, so there's a lot of factors uh, that we obviously, as physicians, need to consider uh, when we are making uh, our choices. Uh, importantly, uh, surveys have indicated uh, that many people uh, HIV positive people are really interested in being engaged and understand what that selection is rather than you as a physician say, I think this is the tablet for you, but you explain why you think this is the best option uh, and give alternative if those are, are reasonable. So on that note, uh, there's a couple of uh, questions uh, that I would like to discuss uh, with the panel uh, uh, from audience uh, that have uh, been uh, contributing with those. So to you, uh, Angelina uh, and Marta, uh, what do you consider, maybe starting with Marta as a physician here, uh, involved with those decisions uh, probably very regularly, 
what what are the key factors that you consider given the current state of the drugs that is now recommended what would be your focus uh, when you uh, have a patient in front of you that uh, should uh, which is ready to start on antiviral treatment yeah so having obviously uh, reviewed you know the medical aspects uh, the biological aspects such as the presence of resistance or not or very high viral loads or uh, very low cd4 or certain comorbidities you know obviously inevitably you have to do your doctor's job uh, first to ensure that uh, the um, general recommendation on the guidelines can be implemented. So just, just beyond, beyond that, uh, I think it is really important, again, to understand what is the lifestyle of the person in front of you at the moment. Do they work? Don't they work? Uh, do they take other medication? Don't they take other medication? Can they swallow pills? Can they uh, take pills every day? Um, do they work shifts? Uh, do they um, have, again, comorbidities either because they're aging or because uh, um, uh, they uh, their mental health at the moment uh, needs a support with medical treatment? So I think this kind of discussion with people living with HIV regarding selections are important. Um, within the context of comorbidities, we can look about metabolic comorbidities. It is a very good opportunity i think to talk about diet and healthy lifestyle i think it's a conversation we should have anyway so that could be you know part of the conversation when you select antiretroviral treatments and then just to say i'm a big fan of two drug regimens that can be used uh, because why using more drugs than you need when you can use only two so that's also i think something that can be taken into consideration if there is no hepatitis B co-infection, for example. And, uh, and that is very clear from the EX guidelines that you showed. Yeah. Angelina, my experience is when you start to explain to patients who is in the middle of a very difficult decision-making process to begin with, and start to overlayer them with the, all the different medical aspects that comes into what you would be recommending uh, that patient to start on and try to involve them in that discussion. Some people feel that it's, uh, it's just too overwhelming. So doctor, please tell me what you think I should take. Is that the wrong way? Uh, and how do we deal with that? Because on the other hand, we obviously can agree on that it's, in, it's important to involve patients in your decision-making process. Isn't that a dilemma? You're right, uh, Jens, it is a dilemma. However, you know, like everything else, we have different types of patients. So for instance, you have those patients who are very, very treatment literate, who want to be informed in every particular decision that is made about their treatment. Then those ones, of course, when you start to explain to them, they're quite happy to go into deeper discussions. Then you have the patients that you mentioned who are very happy about, you know, the patient, just the doctor making the decision about what medication to take. And it's not because they're being um, patronizing or anything. Sometimes for some patients, it's too much to take in. So you know what, you're the expert, tell me what I need to take. And then you have the other group of patients uh, who are may, may not have so much information about treatment or have treatment literacy or may come from cultures whereby you don't really ask a doctor anything. So for instance, where I grew up, you know, we 
take doctors, at, you know, they're in almost like gods in a way. So if a doctor says something, you don't question them. So that group of patients may well want to have more information about their treatment reg- regimen, but may not feel comfort- confident or comfortable enough to ask. So sometimes it's just best to take a minute, you know, as a, as a clinician to gauge which type of patients you're working with. And if the patients want information, you give it to them. One who doesn't need information, you give them that you try and help them to make the decision. And those ones you think may want more information, but I'm not clear about it. That's where, you know, and Martha mentioned about the importance of peer support, because there are, you know, peer supporters who have lots of treatment literacy information and have the time to sit down with the patient, explain things in a very simple way. So, for instance, you know, I, I did do, do treatment literacy workshops with patients. But it's about having that time to explain things in a very visual, you know, because some, some of us, you know, I like to see things visually. I like to see things, maybe you draw them down for me. And I have the time to do that. So it's just about gauging what type of patient it is and what kind of information they need or not. Uh, excellent point. I, I do recall a lot of situations where people have read a lot of things uh, coming into that discussion and really engaged. And then the other patient that essentially is overwhelmed and uh, just tell me, doctor, what I should take. Uh, but it is important, Marta, isn't it, uh, that for this latter patient uh, to really also get them to speak about this, either at one consultation or come back to that uh, at subsequent consultations. So how do we create that space in our conversations uh, with the patients uh, so they feel, although they are overwhelmed, that we actually get to talk about these issues, which are important uh, because people need to be involved and understand why we have made the choices that we have made. No, absolutely. And this is our uh, challenge of creating trust in people. So I think around the description of adverse events, for example, I personally believe that it's better to talk about the adverse events. Everybody knows that drugs have adverse events. There is no point of saying, oh, you'll be fine. Drugs have adverse events. Talk about them. Tell people in front of you what's the percentage or what's the risk of developing adverse events and what are the rates of discontinuation before because of adverse events. I think this is a very important piece of information. And also what I always say to people when they start treatment or they switch treatment, we are here for you. You are not stuck with this medication that gives you side effects. I don't want you to be home miserable having side effects. You please need to come back and tell me because I have done this job for a very long time and there are other alternatives. Don't fear of telling me that this drug causes this. If that's what you think, you're probably the best person, the the most entitled person to say that. And then we're going to have a conversation. And I think this needs to be very clear, even for those patients that you were discussed, that are those that express less the need to express what they want, because you need them to trust you and to be able to come back and say, sorry, this is not for me. Big topic about trust, Uh, Angelina, just here in the end, uh, how do we ensure, at least try to ensure that trust is being developed? Because I think we can all agree that it is important uh, that the patient 
feel that the healthcare provider that is in front of them actually have their absolute best needs in mind? Okay, so I think it's very much about, there's a couple of things that you can do. It's about um, actually really listening to the patient and hearing them and trusting them and asking them open-ended questions. You know, because sometimes as a patient, I'll come to the, you know, the consultation and yes, you'll ask me, Angelina, so how are you today? And uh, my first instinct is to say, I'm fine. But if you push a little bit more and ask, are you really fine? I'll tell you a lot more. So I think in terms of, uh, from the clinician's perspective, I kind of came up with this little mnemonic, which says, listen, which is about really listen to hear, um, to insist on a response and summarizing what you've said. Because sometimes you may say to me, this is what's going to be happening. And you think that I've had, but actually I haven't had. And then just trusting what I say. And we also, what we also do encourage patients on the other side is to, like Martha mentioned about the side effects, and to be prepared when, when I'm coming to see you as a clinician, even just writing down, so how, you know, what is the side effect? How often does it happen? How severe it is? How much does it affect my quality of life? Because then in that way, Martha can then make a decision based on th- that information and, and actually deal with me better. So it's just about both of us being, me as a patient, being very honest with you and you as a clinician really listening to what I'm saying and taking it on board. I think that's probably the best advice uh, HIV clinicians can get. Uh, listen to your patients and give them the space to actually explain how they truly feel. Thank you very much. So let's go on to the third topic, uh, focusing on the need to monitoring individual needs uh, and rationalization for ART adjustment, as this treatment obviously is for, for the life of the patient. We know that there are barriers uh, to antiviral treatment adherence. Uh, we have talked about them in other segments, lack of social support, uh, fear of disclosure of HIV, potentially economical constraints, forgetfulness, religion, concerns about adverse uh, reactions, also maybe from other prior drugs that is no longer used, that still is uh, talked about in the community, uh, comorbidity, and some people obviously is concerned about pill burden, uh, in particular if they're not able to uh, get a one pill uh, a day uh, regime for various reasons. On the other hand, we know that there's a lot of facilitators, which is of course then the opposite. Positive social support, getting family responsibilities, uh, reminders, uh, just continue to emphasize the beneficial impact of antiviral treatment. And uh, in some situations uh, that you as a, care, a healthcare provider have uh, telephone com- conversations. Um, uh, so <clears throat> there is a lot of factors that can rationally be considered if you want to adjust uh, an ART regime. Um, you may want to simplify it, you may want to switch uh, to uh, a more uh, uh, adherence-protected regime. So the newly uh, introduced long-acting antivirals injectables uh, is a potential uh, possibility. Uh, you clearly want to make sure that if people is not tolerating the, uh, whatever drugs that they are on, that you want to switch them to something else. Patients may start other drugs uh, that poses a drug-drug interaction issue that you need to deal deal with. Protection against HPV infection, in particular if you're choosing a two-drug regime, is uh, something you really need to consider. Planned pregnancy, 
You may want to fortify your regime so to make sure that if there is a problem with adherence, that resistance uh, risk is reduced. Uh, uh, and in some situations, uh, there's also uh, adjustments uh, required in order to reduce costs. So again, coming to our panel uh, with some of the questions that we have received from the audience. Marta and Angelina, um, how do you, uh, and maybe uh, Marta, if I can start with you here, how do you uh, emphasize the importance of continuous long-term adherence? Uh, how do you do that? Because this is a conversation we should have to begin with, but obviously we'll see patients for, for many years. How do you continue to say this without sounding like a broken record? No, good question. Um, I probably do sound like a broken record. However, um, I think the, one of the most important thing is that the person that you see in clinic is happy, that's probably a bit extreme, with their combination and with the fact that they're taking pill or is comfortable with that. Um, because then you have some room for discussion on how important it is to remember the tablet every day uh, because that is associated inevitably with well-being from a, a general health point of view. One of the aspects around this is to make sure you ask people every time you see them if they're still happy with what they take. Um, as you are probably aware, we have a document called the Biva Standards that have been written by people living with HIV that are really helpful in guiding us on what assessment to do, but also what questions to ask at clinical visits. And one of them is, are you still happy with your treatment? Are you still aware how important it is to take your treatment every day? Are you still able to treat, to take your treatment every day? So I think this is something that can help because obviously with new combination, new medications, new choice, for people living with HIV, I think it's important that all of this is reviewed regularly rather than just looking at viral load. Um, and if it's undetectable, just, you know, get on. So are you happy with your medication? I think it's a good lead in. Angelina, uh, I'm sure you have had those discussions many times uh, with people in your network as an HIV advocate. What is the discussion? How do the patient community think about their consultations with physicians? Uh, obviously, the Beaver guidelines have been updated uh, and uh, there's a, the, there was involvement of patients in formulating uh, the, the guidance that uh, Marta uh, uh, was uh, just referring to. What, what, do you, what do you hear? Gosh, uh, it, depends. it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, patients who know about the Beaver guidelines and who are well informed. Um, so for instance, we have um, a member network 
called the UK Community Advisory Board, which is made up of people living with HIV, some of them treatment advocates. So they, you know, they tend to provide patients with a lot of information about what's happening, about treatment, about what kind of care you should expect to receive. So a lot of patients who are on, you know, membership of organizations like that tend to get the information that they need. Um, in terms of others who are not linked in to organizations like that or membership uh, like that may not have so much information about it. So I think it just depends. It depends on who you're talking to. It depends on where they access the care. It depends on how confident they are in terms of asking for what they need. So it, it varies, it varies. But what we tend to do then, if you hear that somebody doesn't get the care that they need, then it's you know, in, incumbent upon us who have the information to make sure we pass it on to them. It's, it's the least we can do. So Marta, I mean, the, the continuum of care sort of uh, overview uh, informs us that in many countries, it is actually possible to maintain adherence to the level where HIV uh, uh, remains undetectable in the overwhelming number uh, of patients. Uh, that was not the case 10, 15 years ago. So what are we doing better now that we uh, were still lacking behind uh, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, good point. So new drugs are uh, better tolerated, easier to take. That's definitely an aspect. There is more choice. I mean, today we even have long acting treatments, you know, so people who can't take pills um, can actually opt for a long acting treatment that doesn't need pill taking and that has brought remarkable advantages to the quality of life for certain individuals living with HIV. Um, we know much more about resistance and how to overcome resistance, how to prevent resistance. We know much more about how to support adherence. Uh, again, uh, I always talk about peer support as a very important element because for us, peer support is really helping to fill in the gap of people who struggle with taking pills. Um, peer supporters are knowledgeable about living with HIV and are able really to share their experience with other people uh, and um, promote their engagement into care, for example. Um, also, we know much more about aging, comorbidities, you know, certain areas of life that is in, indeed inevitably life also for people living with HIV because they do belong to their general population. And we know, and their physicians, <laughs> and we know about, you know, uh, which treatments are better in older people or uh, how to support older people maybe uh, because they have impairment of their memory or difficulties with swallowing. And so uh, it's all about uh, knowledge and experience, I think. Angelina, here in the end, if I can just ask you, the situation for many HIV positive people is that they were on HIV pills as the only type of pill uh, for many years but are now, due to their age, as alluded to also by Marta, uh, comes into an age uh, range where they start to have other comorbidities and the number of pills that they need to take every day uh, is mounting. 
How are people dealing with that? Uh, uh, is this a concern in the patient community? Yeah, indeed, it, it, it is a concern. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those patients, even though, of course, I only look 35. But actually, <laughs> I am one of those patients and I take quite a lot. So I have for my blood pressure, I have for my bones, you know, also all sorts of medications. So I think it, it can become quite a burden. However, saying that, I just wanted to just push back a bit in terms of if we're looking at long term taking medication, there are two groups of us who are, you know, you could say treatment um, fatigued. So there's people like me who've been taking treatment for a long time, 20, 30 years. And then there's young people who are born with HIV who've also been taking medication for all their lives. So in a way, that is, in a way, we can kind of be in the same group in terms of we get tired of, we don't get tired of taking medication, but we have to take it. And it's about how do you then fit it into your life? Um, so for instance, I would take most of my medications in the morning, but then there's like, you know, for example, medication that I need to take for my cholesterol, which is better taken at night, for instance. So it's about how you fit it in. It's a lot. And so I think, um, and I know you haven't asked, asked me this, but I think there's so many of us could actually benefit from taking something that is long-term acting. So, you know, so some of us who are treatment fatigue, that would be one less pill to take, you know, or a couple of more pills less to take. Um, you know, there are people who are maybe maybe long-term inpatients uh, who may, and I'm thinking about my own example, when I was, I was an inpatient for six months and I was on an NG tube and, you know, I, I used to watch the nurses crush my meds to make, to liquidize, to be able to be able to put it in the NG tube. So somebody in the hospital for that long, I could have just taken maybe, you know, injecting medication for maybe three times, three or four times. Um, you know, there are patients who are sometimes experiencing intimate partner violence within their homes. And for them, if that is the only pill that they're taking, maybe it might be, it's, it's a way of, it's convenient, it's safe, it's confidential. Um, so I just think, yeah, in terms of the old arts of taking a lot of medication, if there's a way we can find to actually make us take less pills, we know we need them. And of course, we want to take them. It just works best. Thank you. No, certainly a new uh, treatment possibility uh, that we didn't have five years ago, uh, which is great, but also to some extent also quite cumbersome, uh, although it alleviates some of the issues, uh, Angelina, that you're pointing out. So. Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for an excellent uh, uh, discussion uh, on this topic here, uh, a very important topic. Um, so um, my role is just to um, thank you all for listening in uh, uh, on, on this dialogue. Uh, I want to uh, thank uh, Marta and Angelina uh, clearly uh, for their uh, important insight uh, from different perspectives uh, on the three topics uh, that we have been discussing. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this topic on Touch Infectious Diseases at www.touchinfectiousdiseases.com. Mm-hmm.